Second Bananas is recorded on unceded indigenous land belonging to the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Unceded means that this land was never surrendered, relinquished, or handed over in any way. We support the various strategies that indigenous peoples use to protect their land and their communities, and we commit to working in solidarity with them. We acknowledge that as people living and working on these lands, we are accountable to those who have cared for this land since time immemorial. It is our intention to continue learning how to honor this responsibility. I think before we do that, we should probably intro the podcast. Oh yeah, that makes sense. So uh, yeah, welcome to Second Bananas, where we talk about the clout behind the clout that you haven't heard about. Oh yeah, I guess we should introduce. I'm Joe. I'm Stillo. Wes. Walcott. And I'm Craig Blanchard. Do we like? Do we do we use last names? Are we using last names? I don't know if we have to. We can. Edit. We can. It's probably. Well, I just like. There's a lot of Joes out there. That's true. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, so yeah, what we're going to do here is we're going to discuss a figure in history, um, that maybe is sort of known for being in the shadow of a much larger figure for whatever reason. Uh, and again, we've said before, it's a very loose, tenuous, uh, loose. definition that we just sort of allow ourselves to talk about interesting people that maybe aren't quite always in the spotlight for what they did. And especially if they're sort of overshadowed by other figures in the same, you know, area that we're talking about. So today we are going to be talking about uh, David Lance Arneson and Ernst Gary Gygax, uh, the creators of Dungeons and Dragons. Ernst. Ernst. Well, he goes by Gary. Yeah. Um, so why not just go by Gygax? Because that's clearly the <laughs> coolest of his three names. Uh, Gary Gygax is the sort of... Um, when you think D&D, it's Gary. Uh, he's the guy who is really sort of the number one, the person that everyone thinks of as sort of being the most, the biggest influence. And I think that's that's true um, for a lot of reasons. But um, he and Dave uh, co-created Dungeons & Dragons, essentially. They're both credited as the authors on the original Dungeons & Dragons game that came out in 1974. And what I, have, what I sort of say is... Um, Gary and Dave are the creators of the first commercially available tabletop role-playing game. So Dave uh, was born in the Twin areas, areas, Twin Cities area of Minnesota, which is basically Minneapolis, St. Paul. Gary Gygax, on the other hand, was from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, although he was born in Chicago. And by all accounts, Gary was a bit of a ne'er-do-well. He joined a gang, a, a group of boys, as Wikipedia says, called the Kenmore Pirates at seven years old. And the reason he, his family moved to Lake Geneva was he would get into fights with other gangs of boys at the age of eight. <laughs> On, in Chicago, yeah. Gary <laughs> in Chicago. Gygax, He's fresh hardcore. <laughs> yeah. I was kind of convinced that they were going to be appliance thieves. <laughs> yeah <laughs> when you described i think it's the, the name of the name. neighborhood in chicago <laughs> yes but that, that might would, be where the that would make more sense from too right <laughs> yeah. pretty pretty hard to flip appliances with the, well especially you know, in the uh in the 50s <laughs> as what youth seven yeah eight years seven old. years old eight 
Hey, hey, Mister, you want to buy this toaster? Thirteen seven-year-olds like come a, up to yeah, like it's fridge. like three seven-year-olds in a trench coat. They open the trench coat. It's like full of toasters and VCRs. <laughs> so, Speaking. and that's something I think like was interesting. I I had already kind of known this about Gary, but um, he has an FBI record. Uh, in terms of like they were spying on him, not just for the satanic D and D stuff, but like uh polygon and muckrock so muckrock they're like a journalistic outlet that specifically uh does a lot of foia stuff and like goes through like really like censored and like really dense government documents to find information and puts it out there for other journalists to like turn into stories among other things and they actually went through all this um this fbi tsr gary gygax stuff and like gary gygax was like at one point a card-carrying member of the libertarian party the fbi file warns that he's probably armed at all times and that he regularly corresponds with prisoners that's a hell of a day which profile. i think like i mean i think like a i think the prisoners <laughs> thing was specifically about D. I don't think gary was necess- i don't know for sure but i don't think gary was like an activist of any kind i think it's just like when D came out it was like this big phenomenon and there were probably prisoners playing it and they probably wrote to gary talking about it and he probably just corresponded with was them, interested them in that um but he is like he has like he has he he's he's kind of a a rough a rough character like he he was a he was at one point like a heavy cocaine user um partied in hollywood and we'll get into that I heard that makes you really good dungeon master. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, oh man! Uh, but yeah, and the FBI did raid TSR at one point, like Gary's company that create that published D and D. Because um, you guys know the movie Mazes and Monsters. Um, it's a Tom Hanks movie about how Dungeons and Dragons will drive you insane, and how like like so there was an actual guy. Um, I can't remember his name now, but we'll link in the description he basically got obsessed with dungeons and dragons and then he disappeared into like, they're not catacombs, but they're basically these tunnels beneath a city of some kind. Sewers? You're talking about sewers. Yeah. Well not. Yeah, sure. We're talking about fucking sewers. (laughs) Tunnels beneath cities. Honestly, they may be sewers. No, but it's not, it was like, like most sewers aren't like people sized. Actually. That's a myth that Ninja Turtles propagated. And I will continue to believe until you you show me the proof. (laughs) But he was basically this guy when they, he was he was a known like schizophrenic um he had done other things like this before but he basically vanished into these the, the un, this underground tunnels sewer whatever he ninja turtled <laughs> and uh he um and he basically left behind like a shitload of D documents not only like all the books and stuff in his apartment but he had basically like built a full-on like conspiracy web on his wall of like D D maps and stuff like that and that's why the fbi started getting interested in and then and that's what became the movie mazes and monsters which is a really dumb movie but and it's is it supposed to be like a fiction or like a real account or is it like yeah a... it's supposed to be like a true crime like this is what happened to this guy and yeah. it's look what D and did. he basically actually believes that he's like real lifing D D. Right. And like, and like, that's why it's like, he goes, like, he thinks the sewer is like a dungeon. That makes sense. But yeah, so, um, Gary and, uh, Dave sort of worked together on what would eventually become D and D, but they split over sort of creative differences on how the philosophy behind the game, I would say in particular. And again, we'll get into that more in detail later, but, um, yeah, I guess just at this point, that's basically a little overview of the episode. 
so um, <clears throat> they were both big war game players. And what war games are, are like miniatures games, essentially. Um, today, we sort of think of like Warhammer as the big mm -hmm. one or like that kind of stuff with sort of like a lot of science fiction or fantasy elements. Would but at the time... Been, would have been like generals, kind of like how they have their like push sticks and they're like... Yeah, that's actually very much what we're there. talking about yeah. here, except they're more detailed usually. And they're the, part, of the pro, part of the appeal is like building these giant like two scale like battlefields that you then paint miniatures and play on them. And it is like Warhammer is like a version of that. Mm -hmm. um, these would have been the most popular one at the time was sort of Napoleonic era because that just involved a lot of like in the Napoleonic era, the w war was like just beginning to become much more like um, much more complex and technological. Right. Like armadas and there was, and where there like, was like, yeah. And, and guns were starting to come into play. So there was just a lot of, of sort of it, it was still pre sort of like flight. So there wasn't a lot of flying. And that's like something that's hard to model in tabletop games is flight. True. So it just gave them it, it was a good era to sort of specifically focus on like Mechanics. ground based forces that were still very specialized and regimented and stuff like that. And you mm -hmm. could have different like you had dragoons and you'd have infantry and and cavalry and and tanks or like not tanks, tanks. but like cannons, cannons and artillery and stuff so there was just a lot of different options uh -huh. but um there were also a lot of board game war games which similar but usually they were a self-contained thing that you'd buy uh stratego being one of them like that kind of stuff um that's funny i always think of stratego as like a kid's game now but it's it was like yeah one of the first kind of war games that yeah actually was for sale i think well it was definitely it's an all ages game i yeah. think was the idea and now i think it's become more of a kid's game because it's sort of like a proto type right of like what war games would become yeah but those were the two types and at the time they were there wasn't sort of like a a lot of the war gamers played both like they weren't just playing one they right. were playing both and there were complex board games like like we have now only slightly less like crazy Let's, we're playing footsie here greg and i Ooh. yeah Ooh. I want to get in on that <laughs> three-way footsie. Um, yeah, so like there was there wasn't necessarily like a snobbery that was like, oh, you're a board game war gamer. It was like everyone pretty much played everything because that was the other thing about this hobby was sort of <clears throat> people were just playing it, and there was a culture around it, and there was enough of a culture that people could make these games and publish them and sell them and. I wouldn't say make a huge profit, but at least break even, and right. so it was a very like basement do-it-yourself um sort of like subculture that became its own thing with its own specific language and idioms and like there were a lot of zines that went back and forth and this this would have been the 60s and the 50s was when it, it sort of really took root but the 60s and 70s were where it sort of blossomed into what it what it would become and what it eventually birthed which was a table tabletop gaming essentially right so they were like these were just like a passionate community of like gamers that decided to try and you know we're gonna well there were companies, we're gonna make our own games there and... were companies that made games for sure like avalon hill is probably the most famous one that's still around today oh, it's a God, subsidiary yeah. of wizards of the coast but it was it was one of the first companies to start doing that stuff right and um it's really out of war games and board game and gaming and tabletop gaming culture that D, D was born especially war games we'll see and like D D is like a pre predominantly combat oriented game and that's like because it became it came out of a actual war games mm -hmm. um so yeah <clears throat> and and that's and that's the other thing too is 
I think part of what we're going to see here in the story is people just tinkering with rules and and making their own games and modifying existing games and like slowly doing that over time until one game becomes a completely different game and becomes a completely different thing. And we see like, really, there's a continuum in these things. It's not just like, oh, I just came up with this idea. It's like, I played with this other guy that did this cool thing and I like that. So I incorporated that into my game and then I incorporated this other thing. And now I've got a completely different game and there's five other people that really influenced it, but I'm the one that brought all these influences together, right? Mm -hmm. Like they kind of Steve jobs it in a way. They just take stuff that's out there and they just more innocently than Steve jobs, I would say did it, but craftily nonetheless, which is why these, some of these things become timeless. Yeah. Like D&D. So yeah, and that's sort of the big thing. And I think like then the other aspect of it was uh, Dave and Gary again. They had very different philosophies when it came to the game. And um, Dave clearly was just a guy who loved fucking games. Like like they both loved games, don't get me just wrong. But I think head. Dave was just like, he just wanted to play games. He just wanted to make a game and play it and have fun and sort of like keep tinkering with rules. And he wanted to get his friends together and try different things. And he would love playing games. He'd love running games. Um, I think Gary sort of was a hustler in, not in the bad sense, in the sense of like, he was a guy that was always working, always finding angles, always looking for ways to sort of like, just make things like, like make things to his benefit or make his life more like comfortable or fun or whatever. And like, he definitely like loved, I don't want to say that he was in any way cynical and that he was just in it for the money because he wouldn't have, played war games if he was in it for the money he would have gone into like you know like business school or whatever but uh Mm -hmm. i think there was that difference in their personality and i've seen interviews with dave and i he's not like a a naturally he's very he's the few interviews that exist with him that aren't like like printed interviews that are like video or audio you can hear he's he's clearly sort of rehearsed everything he's gonna say and he's very nervous mm. and he just like talks and he sort of has a speech prepared. Whereas like Gary, and I think that's not necessarily meaning that he wasn't personable when he was playing games or feeling natural, but like he was not like a person who necessarily went out of his way to seek sort of attention or anything like that. Yeah. And I think Gary was a little more comfortable and he, Gary was a guy who who definitely wanted to sort of grow his sphere and like find other people and find more people instead of just like his his group of friends and like sort of like and i think like bring legitimacy to the hobby in a weird way right so passionate in different ways Mm -hmm. expand yeah so yeah this is just sort of a jumping off point i'm just wondering if you guys are seeing anything that you want to sort of bring up or if you have any questions about war gaming tabletop gaming that kind of stuff historical context i mean i'm pretty familiar with it i play play a lot of D&D myself. Yeah, yeah and, what about, uh, yeah. <laughs> Wes and I are I've both dabbled pretty, in some Warhammer. <laughs> pretty big gamers yeah. with a Z. Yeah, yeah. I, I play a lot of board games. I've never played a full campaign or even like an abbreviated campaign. What about... We're going to have to change that. Um, do you know at what stage or what was kind of the genesis of the... Um, like the curated experience of Dungeons and Dragons, which very much stands out to me. Yeah. Viewing Dungeons and Dragons objectively, having not had a lot of experience with it. Yeah. It stands out amongst, I mean, obviously with role-playing games, maybe it's more common. Maybe it's absolutely standard, but being that it's such a definitive. 
that's going to be a big part of the first section is where those influences come from okay. and um especially sort of the idea of the dm and and the dungeon master or the mm-hmm. game master precisely what i'm talking about yeah and um i think a lot of this stuff is again like like i said in my major barrett episode there's a lot of post mythologizing going on and sort of like and i think the truth is these guys weren't the only two that were onto this stuff or doing these sorts of things with games in the late 60s early 70s i think they were definitely ahead of a curve and they may have been the ones that were recognizing that they were doing it but even like we'll see with dave a lot of the stuff that he brought to the table that inspired gary was stuff that he picked up from other people um, but I think the curated nature of D&D is what sort of makes it, um, <clears throat> what sort of defines it as a storytelling thing. Like, especially like when you have a person who is essentially acting as not only a referee, but a sort of um, like almost a like a camera or, or yeah. like you said, like a curator of the process and sort of is endowed with certain decisions. What you essentially have is like, that's when you add the stronger sort of like focusing even if even if the players in the DM sort of collaborate to whatever extent, there's a focusing through a point of view which creates a story. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's what a narrative is. Is it's just sort of like um, a, a set of events, right. or whatever, or like a sort of like a a a, 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 a chunk of time that's given a point that's that's told from a particular point of view. Totally. Whether that's someone in the story or not is a whole other thing. But like I think that's where you get. That's where D&D br- really breaks with wargaming is like wargaming is a lot more like sports where the narrative is sort of um, okay. like that's the thing I realized that I never really got onto about sports. And I think in a weird way, like modern video games is like there is a narrative that comes from them, but it's sort of created by the by the spectators afterwards and sort of like there that that's part of the fun of it is is sort of having this narrative of like your reactions to the game as well as the game itself right and i think that's what there's that's where that that idea sort of came from was like a being stifled by well that's what the rules say for this war game like we don't have or we don't have rules for that is the big thing i think that will come up and you'll see like if you don't if there's no rule for it well you either have to invent a rule at the table or you have to sit down with all the players and formalize a set of rules because they all want to do it right because D&D was kind of the first role-playing yes. game. Well, like, published. And I imagine it, like, had its had its outset as one of the first role-playing games. Did the role-playing aspect emerge from that narrative, do you think? Because it's better to have, like, individual characters that have relationships that you can kind of, you know, weave a story in and out of as opposed to just, you know, faceless nations, you know. Yeah, and I think that didn't just come suddenly. Like, again, that sort of stuff has always existed outside of the structure of this sort of war games and stuff. But that came out of it started with like, well, we want to do these things that aren't necessarily war, that aren't tactics in battle. Like we want to have things that influence war and what happens in the of the outcomes in war. Like, I think diplomacy was sort of the inspiration for a lot of those, the game diplomacy, where you're playing nations and they go to war, but you don't actually do anything in the war really other than just like roll a dice. The point is to make alliances and break alliances. And that was sort of melding that with, you know, games like risk or games like these Napoleonic war games. Yeah. Was a genesis of sort of like, Oh, well we can do anything as long as we're comfortable with like 
accepting the responsibility. Yeah. Right? So I feel like D and D and or or their version of of these RPGs came uh like it drew players more to um the non combat things like going into a town and and we have to find out, you know, where shops yeah. are or we have to interact with like the lords to well, figure I think, out I I think actually to me it seems like that stuff was even for a long time at the genesis of D and even when D and D first started, sort of really not the point. No, oh, so like um, very combat. Like it was, or? it was, it was very much like until they started writing adventure modules, and we'll get to that. Um, that was sort of seen as just this thing that was you do you did quickly before you got into the dungeon, right? Because um, <clears throat> most of the campaigns I play now, it's like well, and we'll go we'll go sessions without seeing any combat. And this and... is the thing is like I think that is somewhat what I find in Dave and Gary's approaches. Um, Gary, like ultimately at the end of the day, they both believe that like I think what their their experiences and their sort of like like uh, uh, history of like wanting to tinker with rules and wanting to make games work for them really inspired them to to all eventually eventually come and say like look, this game is just like suggestions at the end of the day. Like you can take what you want from it. And that's what we do. Like we, that's, and that's why, especially a lot of early role-playing games, the rules are kind of clunky and don't necessarily make sense outside of that gaming group or even like are specifically meant to be open enough that you can, you can shove your own rules in there or mm -hmm. tinker with them. Like, or interpret or whatever. Yeah, they're not meant to be like a hidebound way of doing things. Mm -hmm. And I think... Even even Gary's approach was that, but Gary was much more about um, sort of establishing the rules. And I think more to the point of like the DM should be in charge of the rules. The DM says what the rules are. So here are some rules that we use and you can you do what you want with them. But the DM has the say and the DM is sort of this uh, neutral figure. And I think Dave was much more like this is a collaborative effort between the DM and the player. Mm. or the referee and the players or whatever yeah. and it's not really about my rules it's not really about your rules it's like are we having fun are yeah. we telling a cool story are we doing weird goofy shit that makes us laugh are we like ha telling an epic story that like inspires us are we just like whatever like as long as we're having fun and i think that right. was also part of the difference right. in their approach and i've i've had dms where it's not fun. And they're like, sure, they have like their rules in mind. But sometimes like, even if you have these rules in mind, if you're adhering to them too strictly and it's not fun for the players, like, is, is there a point in adhering yeah, to those but, rules? <laughs> and I would argue that the game, like my philosophy is also the game master should be having fun. Yeah. Like a, oh, for sure. And if the game master and the players both aren't having fun because they can't come to an agreement on how the game should work then maybe they should find another group. Yeah. Like both of them, right? Like yeah. I don't, th and that happens and it's not anyone's fault, but like, yeah. I blame my But yeah, absolutely. And it's hard because like, that's the other big thing of D of games that was sort of, and D&D &D and all that stuff that was sort of not really, isn't really being explored until now is the social dynamics and the way you can actually learn a lot about interpersonal relationships and social dynamics and people's worldviews and 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 sort of biases from playing role-playing games with them and that how like people who have that stuff in their lives and understand it better are actually often better at the games because they're more sensitive to other people's right feelings and needs and stuff like that i find i i feel i'm not even very good at role-playing because i always play a character that's like has similar values to me or like do so do what i would do but in the like, situation that's fine right like and that's as long as you're, you're still role-playing yeah. you're still role-playing you're because 
you're you're what role playing is is it's putting your putting it's going into a situation that's unfamiliar and and going through it and the idea is it's like in in sense of like you know one of the the social functions of storytelling um for us is to allow us to experience things that we either can't or are unable or like either that we can't experience for real in a lot of ways like and and that's a normal function of storytelling is like that's why we love horror movies and thrillers and like it's like social dreaming it's like Mm-hmm. yeah it's a way to experience those things in a safe around yeah. way and that's what role-playing is it's like it's also that's why role-playing gets used in therapy in relationships because sexy time sexy time <laughs> because it's a way to sort of like 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 put yourself in a situation that you're uncomfortable in in a safe contained way you're, too, you're right? rehearse, literally rehearsing everything. yeah exactly and like and that's the thing is like i don't think these guys necessarily realize that that's what they were building or that it could function that way. And it's cool that that that's the way it's going. But like, that was not what these guys were doing, but, and, and I think it shows in the history of how role-playing games evolved mm-hmm. um, yeah. up until now. So interesting. I wonder mm-hmm. what the pedagogical implications of role-playing and role-playing games. Yeah. Well, and that's interesting. Or are, too. or if somebody's researching that's that. Something we'll get into in wild. a bit is how yeah. Dave was a teacher for a long time. Uh, especially like up until his death he taught game design at college but he actually at one point worked with special needs children and and in schools and he saw how he saw how interesting it was that you could teach both uh, math and statistics and hard hard math and sciences along with you know sort of like emotional social Mm. stuff with a role-playing game right and how you could sort of like use that as a way to get kids interested in the stuff without even really cool because you see so many teachers now trying to incorporate gamification into their studies because it engages students on such a higher level and it also led to like regurgitating textbook information these these tabletop games are the precursor to video games yeah no doubt there's no way you can't say that they were sort of like yeah even to this day most role-playing games are based off fallout final fantasy like diablo like all these games have their basis in in D. &D. well if Mm -hmm. you think about the like the dopamine uh dose that uh something like leveling an accomplishment in a game um, and if you think about the same release, the same equivalent, the social equivalent in like a social media platform or whatever, yeah. you can't help but think that the future economically, maybe politically, certainly already socially, all like the game, the gamification of all these different areas of our shared social existence, it seems like it can't help but be come. Yeah, know, it's a little a, bit of our nature, game, right? right? Like we kind of and it's it's sort of like a game is just almost like like recognizing patterns that we find in nature or the world or the natural world or like whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And then sort of like formalizing them to the point of like, you can predict them in a way, right? Like, especially like, like chess is another good example of that. Like, uh, like, like sports are a great example of ritualizing things, ritualizing a, a, a thing that we do naturally and just making it sort of like, like reps or like like something you can achieve by repeatedly doing it and get getting better at it, right? Mm-hmm. Grinding, grinding, yeah. Yeah, whatever you want to fucking call it. Well, it occurs to me that actually capitalism is already a big game, right? <laughs> oh, because for sure. There's winners and oh, losers, yeah. and it's easier to be a winner if you are more in a the more game conducive of, circumstance. The game of life winning. is based on capitalism. <laughs> well, and a little bit going back to Joseph Campbell, that's one of the things he calls uh, religion is a game. 
And he's and he means it in not a sense of like it's a silly frivolous game. He means no, we as humans we bond through playing games and religious ritual is a form of game. And if you and that's part of the reason like he he sort of is like yeah, like if people are like oh this is stupid, this is just a stupid ritual game thing. He's like yeah, no it is. And that's important. And that's a value. That's a thing that humans do to bond. And like, that's why there are people who necessarily don't even believe in God. They go to church because it's a game that they want to play. And I don't, and that's not to meant in a derogatory way. It's like, no, it's a way, it's a social, it's a form of social bonding. It's actually very practical. It's practical. It's a form of like, it's a form of community. And it's like, yes, there are negative aspects to it. If it gets too, and often the problem is if you, if you stop seeing it as a game and you start seeing it as this is how life is, that's when it becomes dangerous, right? When you can recognize it as a, as a thing that is important to you because of your your nature and the way we are as people, and you can keep that in, in that context and not take it so seriously, then it's the same with any, like us playing sports or anything like that. And obviously being a professional athlete changes that a little, but I think like a healthy, an athlete who is has a somewhat healthy relationship to their jobs realizes, yeah, I still have to have a family. I still have to have contacts outside of sports in order to stay like mentally healthy. And I'm getting paid millions to play a kid's game. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the other thing too, right? Right. That's it's important. Yeah, yeah. That perspective. So that's, that's, those are some really good points that I think will play into this a bit too. Um, but yeah, let's get into a little more backstory and uh, sort of Dave and Gary before they met each other. I think I've said enough about Gary. I'm really going to focus on Dave. I really found it hard to find anything about Dave's life outside of gaming. Um, and I, I don't know if that was intentional or just because people didn't see him as notable enough or probably maybe a bit of both. I, I think yeah. he was just a very, a guy who was really just like, I have my gaming life and I have my life life and right. separate. Yeah. It feels like he is so tied to, to gaming. It's kind of hard to separate. Well, and he them. grew up in an era before the internet, like most of yes. his life was lived. He died in 2009. Yeah. So most of his life was pre-internet, pre-people sort of documenting everything, which again, but so from what I understand, his parents bought him the board war game Gettysburg from Avalon Hill, which was sort of a big one, the Battle of Gettysburg in board game form that essentially brought a lot of gamers into the hobby. And um, he teaches his friends how to play. And then eventually they kind of get bored of that and start modifying their games. They learn other games. And they start creating their own games. And I think this is going on when he's like a teenager and a young adult. So he's he's been playing since he was very young. He's very comfortable with these things. He likes them a lot. And uh, he goes off to college. And in 1968, he joins the Midwest Military Simulation Association. And uh, if you when you're researching this history, you'll find a lot of stuff like this. Like there were actually clubs with these kinds of names like they had uh gary too had like the the lake geneva association of game of hobby war gamers or something like that and they all had acronyms Mm -hmm. and i think a lot of it was this sort of like there's a bit of um military fetishism and not necessarily that these like some of them were in the military and some of them weren't but like that interest in sort of the trappings of military life was like a big part of it I imagine, um, yeah, most people that were into those war games were kind of like military buffs. Yeah, and I think that's also something that I kind of would would be not amiss to note is like one of the most po- the most popular war game was this sort of Napoleonic era game, and like you think about the context of Napoleon and like 
that was sort of the birth of not the birth of but like really the the like heavy of the imperialist era by far um it was an era where europe was colonizing and brutalizing the rest of the world um and each other and sort of there was a very heavy politics of dominance and aggression and i think like the fact that that was sort of the where role-playing games came out of really informed what they were especially at the beginning Mm-hmm. and uh and sort of like the imperialism and the sort of like assumptions behind that um yeah. kind of increase those borders i mean man. even like you think about well yeah and you <laughs> think about like what do dungeon what do dungeon what was the original dungeons and dragons game you go into a dungeon that's basically like <laughs> an ecosystem of its own with creatures in it that are like living fuck up all the native and habits. you fuck them all up <laughs> you murder them and you take their valuable shit well what does that sound like that's fucking colonialism <laughs> totally or like whatever like, it, like it's going into another country and plundering it for resources sure. um or another yeah. another autonomous zone or whatever you want to call it right right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah i see the parallels pretty clear Alex. and i think that's why that's part of the reason why lately there's been a move away from that in the gaming community especially like I think games actually are these role playing games are a very strong way to let people in that aren't like again like they're empathy exercises so naturally and they're ways of they're they're both an empathy exercise and a power fantasy which combines two really interesting sort of uh, almost like the dichotomy or like a yeah there's a ju- almost a juxtaposition there yeah. but also at the same time it's like the powerless can get a power fantasy and also they can learn about other people who maybe don't like the like it's just like an interesting thing and i think like board game tabletop games like don't get me wrong there's still a lot of awful like especially sexism and racism and stuff like that in the community at large and like a lot of it is the same that's prevalent throughout society of like unconscious uh systemic stuff that's but like really like there is a huge community of marginalized people making indie games these days um some that come to mind are like avery alder is a trans woman who makes games about like um like she made she made a game about like an apocalypse like community like communities outside of like an impending apocalypse that are mostly predominantly queer and like the way they interact or like um she made a game called ribbon drive which is where you and your friends are going on a road trip and you build like a mixtape that you build the game around and stuff like that so lots of really interesting and very like deliberately like empathic games um and i think because of that sort of engine of like it both being a power fantasy that that attracts people that maybe don't have that power in their lives or whatever Mm -hmm. and also a way to but also a way to teach empathy kind of makes it sort of a Mm -hmm. breeding ground for people to sort of come to it as someone who is maybe even in a little way like even if they're you know a white straight cis male who's been maybe marginalized because they aren't, you know, like they are marginalized by toxic masculinity or they are marginalized by whatever individual things in their own community because they don't fit in can go into that game. And like maybe not even gaming with somebody from a a systemically marginalized community, but can learn how to have empathy for those people from these games while still engaging in what is essentially a way to make themselves feel powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Very much like I think D and D, like especially you see it portrayed in in films and movies. It very much is like an escape for a marginalized or like an oppressed youth kind of. Yeah. Like even in Stranger Things, like you very much see that kind of. Even though those kids are all pretty like affluent yeah. middle class white, right? except for the like, one kid that's well, yeah, doesn't have asthma or he's sick or something. Well, yeah, like that, to varying <laughs> degrees, right? But yeah. they're all sort of like 
living pretty comfortable lives overall. They're not like necessarily worried about violence from things other than like supernatural monsters. That's right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, but, like social social outcasts. Social outcasts and yeah. a place to fit in and something mm-hmm. that's their own to feel comfortable with and to build confidence with. Yeah. In absolutely. a safe as you said before, in a safe mm-hmm. space and an opportunity, for example, for maybe a more uh, somebody with maybe a more aggressive disposition or whatever mm-hmm. to be able to enter into and be take their first em- empathetic steps without the people around them necessarily well, judging them and be like a oh, loser and or yeah whatever. absolutely mm-hmm. and I also don't want to say that those dynamics can't be subverted and used to of course twist it to ends like that tool. is a problem and like that's something that needs to be discussed and like but it it's yeah so. <laughs> right. So uh, Dave meets Dave Arneson meets Dave Wesley, um, who is the creator of a game called Bronstein. And Bronstein is really where I think we see the proto role playing game. Uh, it is a Napoleonic era war game set in the German fictional town of Bronstein, which means brownstone in, in German. Um, and what it is, is they started it was just a war game to start. But Dave Wesley started adding non-military players. Uh, roles that players could take on um so they had like a mayor a university chancellor and a banker stuff like that and dave wesley decided that the best way to sort of handle all this was to become like a referee like he wasn't playing like he didn't have any stake in the game itself other than the playing of the game and that way he he could sort of be basically a rules referee Mm -hmm. which was sort of I don't want to say it was a completely new concept. I think there were other gamers who had developed that for various reasons, especially like when you do tournaments, there's often a referee to sort of be a neutral arbiter of disputes and stuff like that. I think this is just sort of like maybe building from that, or maybe they watch sports and they thought, let's have a referee, or maybe they just thought, you know, this will be like when I, when a guy writes a novel, I'm going to be letting the characters play out in my head and I'm just making sure that this all works. Well, yeah, I I feel like with games like this, where it's, you don't necessarily have every, interaction with a you know board piece or like it's it's hard to track all that so yeah i feel yeah yeah i feel if yeah if you have a neutral arbiter they can keep track yeah. of that stuff too right so so i think it works or it was almost like came out of necessity so this is what dave arneson said about it in an interview uh, we started setting different objectives for the players it wasn't just about fighting we started stealing things bombs guns food supplies that sort of thing Players could negotiate with each other for who captured the goal and then had to figure out how they were going to slip the products past a blockade and sell them on the black market. And there you see, again, just sort of like that idea of like, well, if the rule, if there's no rule for it, we can make our own or the referee can decide and we'll sort of negotiate and we'll have, again, like negotiation and sort of like, mm-hmm. like, like coming to an agreement, even yeah. in, even in like a game of no stakes or whatever, right? Oh, like this totally. is the equivalent of playing poker with chips and not for actual money or whatever, right? Like, Yeah, I feel like some of the best moments that we've had, at least in some of my like, D&D, is when you're trying something where you don't even know the DM is going to like allow this. It's yeah. like, I'm going to try and use this spell in this way mm-hmm. in like an out-of-the-box scenario, and if it works great, and if the DM shuts it down, then, well, now I've just learned... I've learned how to use this, like, you know, power. Or I've learned yeah, and it's just sort of... It. And you're also just defining the parameters of the narrative that you're building or yeah. the, the, the the simulation that you're building. Um, and so, yeah, uh, what's interesting is Dave Wesley still runs games of Bronstein at 
uh, GaryCon, which is the Gary Gygax convention to this day. GaryCon. Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that's like a big thing. Is like, Gar- <laughs> Dave does not have a DaveCon, by the way. <laughs> and that's something to think about. Not only does he join this game, this this gaming group and start playing Bronstein, he also goes to the second ever Gen Con, a.k.a. Lake Geneva convention, which Gary created, Gary Gygax. And it's now, it, back then he basically rented like this tiny little hall. There was like a hundred people or something like that. Now it's one of uh, North America's largest hobby game conventions. Like Gen Con is the con you have to go to if you're in in role-playing games or board games or even video games or even like even comics and TV. It's got a little bit of that too now. I think I used to get it confused with Genre Con. Do they call it Genre Con? con. Okay, maybe I'm making that up. You might be. (laughs) Probably are. Um But you should really make it up. Okay. Okay. But yeah, so Gary founded this. That's the other thing too. I think Gary was a guy who was like, again, he was, Dave was not out there, you know, like putting a con together. Being an ambassador. Being an ambassador, creating these spaces. Like Gary really was a guy that created spaces for people. And I, there was always like, I think like at least a financial motive of like, I'd like to break even. But I don't think it was ever, it was definitely not a case with Gary of like, I'm going to make fucking billions off this. Like he was like, he, he, I think he was like an insurance, uh, he worked in the mailroom of an insurance company for years and then he lost that job. And he was basically at that point, this is like the late sixties. He was working freelance out of his house, cobbling shoes to support his family. And these guys, Dave and Gary both had families at this point. They were married with kids. Mm. Um, and he would basically work freelance for a company called Guidon games. This is Gary while cobbling shoes in his basement to make ends meet. Um, So he was not by any means expecting this to be a way to wealth and fortune. He was wanting to make a living doing what he loved. That's the way to do it. um, And not even make a living, just do what he, have the time to do what he loved while still supporting a family. Right. Mm -hmm. But so they meet at the second Gen Con and they start corresponding. And I think there was a lot of correspondence between them again, I think they were just both really excited about games and they actually designed a war game together called don't give up the ship, which is basically like a ship to ship naval combat game where you could like try and like board each other's ships and stuff like that. Um, so they worked together. Cool. Uh, so in 1970, uh, Dave Wesley is, he's a reser- an army reservist and Dave started running Bronstein games. Um, he basically took over for Dave Wesley and he created a Wild West version called Brownstone. And that's where you get the idea of people, of players controlling a single character. So he mm. goes from sort of this like, hey guys, like we're going to be sort of these uh, forces and sometimes an individual like a mayor, but other times you're like the bank or like whatever, like in a Monopoly game. And he goes, no, in this game, we're all going to be cowboys in a frontier town. Then in 1971, Gary Gygax and another guy, uh, I think Dave McGarry, who's not really important to the story, but that's. They co-create a medieval fantasy war game with magic and spells and knights and monsters called Chainmail. Chainmail is the the game that D&D came out of. The precursor. But it was still much more like an actual accurate to sort of medieval life. Like it was very much like knights and like, you know, like toil. sieges, toil, feudalism. Plagues. <laughs> Uh, goblins Son of very common in, in medieval Europe. Games. yeah <laughs> sanitation issues <laughs> and um and dave actually tried chain mail 
and he was like, oh, maybe I can use this for um, a Brownstein game. And what he does is he creates Blackmore, again, using the naming convention, um, which is essentially the medieval version of Brownstone and the proto mm. D&D in a sense. And he actually didn't, he found that the chainmail rules didn't really work in the end, but they sort of informed a lot of it and sort of the, the world. And again, Gary had created the game, so I'm sure they were corresponding. They had built games together. I'm sure, like Dave mentioned to Gary, like, yeah, I used your chainmail rules to create this game called Blackmore, and I'm gonna I'm gonna run it for you at the next Gen Con. It's really cool. You should check it out. And I don't know what Gary's reaction was before that. I don't know if he was like, Yeah, whatever, it's just another game. But in 1972, uh, Dave brings Blackmore to Gen Con. And Gary loves it so fucking much that he creates his own version. He just basically goes home and he's like, Dave, I love this game. I want to make my own. And I want to, I want you to like, to like help me make it. I want like, I'm going to send you the notes. I'm going to make this. I'm going to make my own version and we're going to play it. We're going to work each. We're going to basically like give each other play test feedback and all this stuff. And like, make Blackmore and my game will like they had planned to sort of make it into one game at some point it became that so um literally two weeks later Gary has already written a 50 page set of rules like that's that's who this guy is is he like this is what he does for fun awesome. and um he calls it Greyhawk which again sort of references the the naming convention and Color Greyhawk and is item. still one of the most famous D&D settings to this day. It's probably not the premier one, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, I don't think I've ever been to Greyhawk. Well, um, some of it is ended up like, again, like D&D realms have always sort of been whatever works for the the rules you're making and stuff like that. Yeah, so, of course. <clears throat> but um, yeah, and and so Gary starts running this Greyhawk fantasy game for his kids for his friends and they love it. And I think that's at least the very, in the very, in the back of his mind, if not already consciously, Gary was like, well, maybe I could publish this game. Cause like he had already been doing freelance editing and game design for other companies. Um, By this point, have they started bringing in like maps and miniatures? Like are those a part of the game? Well, maps and miniatures were part of the game from the start okay. because that's the thing is like, they came out of war games, which so. came from Brownstein or like, yeah, or, so Bronstein yeah. would have been an actual miniatures war game. It just had non-war sort mm -hmm. of things that are tangential to war. And then I think Brownstone sort of added a lot more things. And I know uh, Dave also did a, um, um, Ironclad, which was a civil war game that, that had one. hit points, armor class, that kind of stuff for soldiers. Uh -huh. And that was where he sort of took a lot of that stuff. Like, again, I just want to sort of clarify, like, these guys were, like, taking all these fucking crazy influences and blending them together slowly over time this happened over so like dave started playing bronstein in 1968 D, D wasn't published till 1974 that was almost a decade of just like playing games and trying things and slowly slowly crafting these games over years and take just what they pre preferred right mm -hmm. so yeah cool cool and yeah um so eventually they get this sort of 150 page rule book known as the fantasy game very but, generic i like it yeah <laughs> extremely <laughs> the fantasy game yeah. the game that is fantasy <laughs> i'm sold uh i don't know if that was like official or whatever but mm -hmm. so um so i think at this point is when dave and gary both realize that the philosophies they want to bring to the game are different or whatever the vision they have for the game mm -hmm. isn't quite the same but 
Gary really wants to publish. Like he's like, yeah, he needs to get you that. Gotta publish. You gotta pub- publish a parish, kid. Like gotta that. That's Gorilla. Gotta get, yeah. He definitely said that. Specifically. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, we gotta get that Skrilla. We gotta get we gotta get this game out and get that Skrilla. Get that RPG Skrilla. That RPG Skrilla. It's out there. Um, but uh, neither of them have the money, and Gary shops it around to the companies he freelances for, and none of them really want it. Oh, that's sad. But at, at, sorry, at this stage, there is a big rule book. 150 pages again like this is probably like double space typewriter pages keep that in mind that are probably single-sided maybe not i don't know again 150 pages sort of like what does that mean but yeah this isn't like a rule book like we think of DD today where it's like got all these illustrations and stuff like these guys were like mimeographing if you even look at war games at the time it was like black and white mimeograph very like like physical cut and paste um low budget stuff that they could afford to do right and did it come with a board and piece kind of i don't think that was any of that was here the pitch was here's the rules to this well the the main thing was again like they they built it out of chain mail um uh, especially gary's game was built out of chain mail which was a miniatures game and you actually had to the original D and D. You had to you had to own chainmail. What you had to you own physical chainmail? Chain oh mail. no, no, the game. Yeah, you, had to, you had to own a chainmail shirt. <laughs> you cannot play saying. this game without You're a like, chainmail shirt. It's built out of, of chainmail. Ideally, like, fuck, man. a halberd and a gorget. If yeah. you do not have those, you cannot play D and D. And a tunic. Good day, sir. <laughs> tunic optional. My tunic, especially shrank, for the ladies, shrank right? in the dryer. <laughs> it became a t-shirt. <laughs> okay, chainmail, yeah. Uh, no, the chainmail, the game that Gary created. It, yeah, that was the archetype. Actually, there was another of... game, a, a survival game that you also had to have to oh, play. Uh, and again, uh, like that was normal for, for the time. Again, they would just take, ex- like, they would say, like, gaming companies would even just say, like, yeah, for if you want to do this in this game, use these rules from this game. Wow! Like so these, it, it, these were people publishing out of like basements, out the of the original backs expansion. Of stores. So it's like, yeah. yeah, I was gonna say these were like expansions, but like yes, from other publishers. That, that's where like, bastardized expansion. Yeah. <laughs> that's what happened in the in the seventies and eighties. Is a lot of these guys started getting software jobs, huh. like were, like for companies. Like they were the first IT guys, right. and they were the ones <laughs> that were like, "Hey, wait! If I take this programming language." Oh, man. I can just like make a fucking game. Yeah. This was like, like offline DLC. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was like, and it was just like sort of like, again, because there wasn't a lot of money. People weren't making fortunes off this. People were barely paying their bills. It wasn't a thing of like, well, I made this and you made this and we need royalties. Right. And we it was a hobby. So was, with lawyers. Like, yeah. Was Chainmail was a, something that was like, it wasn't published. It was like a, still an no, unpublished. No, no, Chainmail was published was. in 1971. And did and I said sorry, that. but that Jeez, was sorry, but that was published by. Uh, pay attention to this long yeah. rambling podcast where <laughs> but we who, all bounce ideas. Who published? <laughs> who published Chainmail? Was that Gary? No, that was a company called Guidon Games. Guidon um, Games. I don't know. It was like a lot of little companies, um, but Guidon was one of the big ones that Gary. That was the one that Gary was freelancing for, and they would also publish his own games. And do they have any say that? their games require chainmail are they like good more people are going to buy chainmail well because probably yeah right 
Actually, I didn't really think about that, but that's a good way of drumming up like. Well, that's also let's sell a couple of units from our back catalog. And I think there. There, there weren't like twenty companies doing this, especially like I it, they would have all been somewhat regional too. I think Avalon Hill was the exception, but I think Guidon really was like a a borscht belt, uh, you know, like Midwest, Northern Midwest area so this was a very like that was where this stuff sort of started it's not that people weren't playing it everywhere else but like this is where these guys hub was mm-hmm. um so as far as i know yeah you needed chain mail but we haven't even gotten to dnd yet you guys so uh <laughs> calm down just calm the fuck down i will not no um that's what i like about you guys you never calm down <laughs> always ice drugs um so gary finally in 1973 is like i'm just gonna found my own company and he knows another guy named don k who's a little they both scraped together i think it was like 2400 dollars to basically it was don king (laughs) it was definitely don king he's he's a a big he's a promoter he is a promoter he is a promoter (laughs) so don k K k-a-y-e and gary found tactical studies rules or tsr and anyone who gamed before the 1990s or even um into the 1990s would recognize that like tsr was like not only the um role-playing and sort of board game company of especially the 70s and the 80s like they i think the thing i remember them was like the puzzles that they put out that were like these super like boris vallejo frank frazetta like fantasy paintings in like puzzle form that was like a big money maker for them um, just that kind of stuff. Like, if you think of like sexy Conan the Barbarian, uh, m- muscle guys with like a with like a a hot buxom like like oh, girl yeah. in a loincloth, all fight, fighting a dinosaur or a tiger or Clutching whatever. Clutching leg. That's like or like like sexy mermaid people swimming through like a golden kingdom under the water. Like that's what TSR's oh, yeah. like art looked like. Right. That's where that like comes it. from in I a like lot it. of ways very hot um again i don't want to get too i'm not going to get too much into tsr because that's actually been explored really well in like a number of books there's a lot of great resources out there about the gaming industry as a whole so i'm not going to just talk about tsr a lot it's only really going to be where it intersects with dave and gary's story and how much that matters Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. but they they basically are running it out of uh don k's house Mm-hmm. and uh they still can't afford to publish D. it would cost too much to print the rules and everything in the way they want so instead they publish war games to start generating income and again dave just doesn't have the skrilla as he would say dave yeah dave arneson loves skrilla <laughs> he just needs all about that <laughs> he's got to get out there and go get it he doesn't yeah. have that go-getter attitude um and what happens is gary finally finds uh this guy named Brian Bloom, who is also a gamer. Um, he and his father have like a little bit of money and they're like, we want to invest. And that's when they publish the first commercial version of D&D, the first version that is published and sold on market. Because they had an investor. They wouldn't have been able to do it without an investor. I mean, investor is sort of like this was we're ta- we're still talking like like three to four thousand dollars total between all of them. And I'm like the Bloom sort of. But it was what what they did was. I think they were just technically a partnership even still like they weren't a, a fully licensed company or whatever. I don't I don't know. I don't pretend to know how all that stuff works. Um incorporation versus partnership. Yeah, or whatever yeah. how it works, but 
Um, yeah, this again, we're talking about very small amounts, of, like very small amounts of money for uh, what what TSR would eventually become, which is a multi million dollar company. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so they published the first commercial version of D and D, credited to Gygax and Arneson. That's literally what it says on the cover. It's like Dungeons and Dragons, a fantasy role playing game, by Gygax and Arneson. Those are the credits. Um, I don't know how that situation was hashed out. There seems to be no record of it. I don't know if Gary was just like, Dave, I'm publishing this and I'm going to give you the credit. And Dave was like, yeah, sure, whatever. I'm sure it'll sell like however many copies because he had designed games that had been published. So he was probably used to. It wasn't his first. This is not going to be like whatever. Like and and I don't think Dave saw the potential that Gary did. I think he was just like or he didn't care. He was just like, I just I don't care. I just want to play like, okay, great. You sell this thing to like maybe 100 extra people. Great. Cool. Um. But they basically hand assembled this box set, like all of them, and it was a run of five hundred or a thousand. I've I've seen both figures, and not, either one could be accurate. Mm-hmm. And those sold out within a year. And by comparison, most war games at the time were like a thousand copies. Was like we did it. That's, Ever that's success. Yeah. Like if a thousand copies <laughs> in like five to ten years was Time like damn, we did it. Like we yeah. We can finally retire from this life of <laughs> life of publishing dungeons and publishing tank games. It's a dream. And yeah, so Dave um, was getting ten percent royalties. That was what was worked out. Which you know, I I can't remember what the actual box retailed for. I think it was like, I think the equivalent today would be still just like forty or fifty dollars. Like okay. it's it wouldn't be like it would be like you know something that like. It'd be like a standard, like probably like 80, any adult could any adult today, could or, play. Yeah. Any adult could that was ma- making a stable income could afford to buy and not break the bank, or that a child could like save up for with their allowance or like cutting grass. It or could whatever, be like right? a birthday or Christmas. Yeah, kind or of a thing. birthday or Christmas present, not that kind of thing. Completely over the top, not out of reach. Where in contrast to today, when each book is fifty to sixty dollars. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. you, you can also, there's a free basic rules set that people can get for free that are just like the, like a pared down version. And that's like the way they hook people. Right. But, right. and also say that then they can justify charging 50 to $60 a book. But yeah, because there's that much yeah. um, going on behind the scenes in terms of people pirating stuff and whatever yeah. else goes on. Yeah, yeah. I've never done that. <laughs> Me either. <Mm-mm>, never. <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I didn't mean to bring it up. <laughs> we're, we're not incriminating exactly, ourselves don't so don't worry about, about it <laughs> clearly that's what i concluded too <laughs> we're doing the opposite of incriminating ourselves yes absolving so um they realize just how much money is in this they print more and they start writing supplements i don't know how exactly this tradition evolved i don't know if it was just like well we've done expansion sets for games before let's do this for D, but um one of the first supplements they released was a Blackmore setting supplement. And that not only added some classes like the monk and the assassin who are still, well, the assassin doesn't really exist in D and D anymore. It's usually like a subclass of the yeah. rogue. rogue, but the monk is like a class that persists to this day. Mm-hmm. And, um, what it really is known for is it was the first adventure. Like it was a, it was an adventure module that you could, that play DMS could run for their players. Like, um, from what I understand in early D&D is 
it was a game where it was assumed that it was just one kind of shared universe in a lot of ways. And you would make a character and then you would go to a DM who had built a dungeon and be like, I want to run my character through your dungeon. Mm-hmm. And you would take that character to different dungeons that different DMs had constructed. The whole idea of like a world outside of it was just sort of like, yeah, that's mm. not what we're playing. We're simulating treasure hunting adventures. We're so, simulating like Indiana Jones meets Conan the Barbarian. That's what we're simulating. So had they introduced the concept of um, how your character uh, progresses? Have they introduced Yeah, that that's yet? in the original concept. And I think, I don't know if that all came out of Chainmail or whatever, but leveling is sort of present from the very beginning. Okay. And the idea is just, it's a way of sort of like, it's it's that like you said like those dings of like the rewards essentially it's mm-hmm. sort of like a gamification of of a character of, of a of a, a player character growing and changing and getting tougher and stronger and able to do more right. right yeah that's the other thing this is just a weird fact that i've heard a couple times from a couple different sources but gary gygax apparently thought the dm like the dungeon master's screen should be a full body screen so you couldn't see the dungeon master at all which is like super interesting sounds like he just wanted to jack off well yeah yeah. guess what i'm holding right now in order to pass this quest it's breast straining against the bandages it's like like gary what are you doing back there nothing nothing so the mummy is really horny from you your character not me your character those decomposed mummy boobs so hot (laughs) anyways i like where that was going i'm gonna need to hire you for a dm yeah good dungeon practice guys uh yeah i expected kink to come up eventually so i'm glad it came up sooner than later yeah yeah. well i don't know about sooner but (laughs) i'm I'm um, looking forward to the satanism yeah oh that's right oh we don't the satanism isn't really actually in this because dave had almost nothing to do with that well, I might have to inject some then. Oh, boy. <laughs> Injecting some Satanism into us. Yeah, hot Satanism. Hot injection. Satanism injection. Whoa, Thick, ropey whoa, whoa. Satanism. <laughs> You're throwing some ropes, some Satanic ropes. <laughs> ropey is just such a great adjective. <laughs> it's, it's like you project whatever you want it to mean yeah. into that. The audience oh, projects whatever they want to, you, to, y'all, to me. Y'all are the perverts. That. Y'all listeners, not yeah. us. Yeah. yeah, you pervs. Uh so Don K, the guy who partnered with uh Gary and the Blooms, uh Brian and Melvin, um, dies of a heart attack in nineteen seventy five, just as Dungeons and Dragons is like going bananas. And his wife is basically like, I I don't want to be part of this. Um she wants to get rid of her shares because his share, that's like what they all have shares in this partnership or whatever. Mm-hmm. And Gary can't afford them. So the blooms buy them. And that's kind of a theme we'll see repeated later on. Um, and they are now technically like, I don't know how a partnership works, but in a way they're essentially the majority shareholders. Like they mm. own the most shares. They have the most say. Partnership at, is basically 50, 50. So at this any... point, Gary is technically their employee. I guess. So I don't know if they've already become a a company or whatever. Uh I don't know if that's actually true. Eventually it was absolutely true that even though Gary owned stock in the company, they were like majority shareholders, like beyond just this thing with Don K. Right. Um, Sorry, do you know if Brian and and Melvin, were they interested in the game at all? Yeah, they they were. were. That is important to note that everyone involved at this point was not a business person looking to make a buck. They were all gamers who, to a greater or lesser extent, love the hobby and just like 
it seems to me like um, maybe Brian and Melvin saw a little more how big it could get. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they were just kind of control freaks. I've Gary. It sounds like Gary was not necessarily an easy person to deal with <laughs> mm. all the time. I think he very much was like insisting on getting his way. And I don't know. Again, like I, I know that they ended up fighting a lot behind the scenes and Gary and them fought for control of the company. I don't know if that was the case from day one. I don't know if they were all just buddies like doing this thing and then things soured between them when the money got involved, as it often does. But um, 1976, they move into the back of a gaming shop. Uh, I can't remember what the name of the gaming store is, but you can look it up online. Um, EB Games. Instead of sort of in Gary's basement, it was EB Games. It was the first (laughs) EB Games ever, standing for uh, Everett Brownstein Games. That's that's right. That's that's where EB comes from. You can quote and us. <laughs> they hired Dave as the director of research, which I think is like literally them just making up bullshit titles. <laughs> like it just, I don't know. Like, I don't even like, it sounds like them not like, not only like making up a bullshit title, but trying to be funny and, and tongue in cheek about it, but just sounding like dorks. Director of research. Um, yeah. I feel like it's a little They're honestly role. like, I like, um, uh, in doing this research, I ran across a lot of forums where like these actual, um, uh like these figures from the role-playing games like early people who were involved from the beginning like gary and like tim cask who was a major editor for tsr uh would actually post on these forums and those guys fucking love words (laughs) (laughs) they fucking love being as like uh verbose and grandiose as possible um and it makes them look like huge dorks which they were <laughs> a little yeah. pedantic and i love all of them but... shallow and pedantic well there's something about they're not necessarily <laughs> people i would like to like like um i would like to like like share a single room house with <laughs> right. or anything like that mm. well there's something about being kind of enabled and encouraged by mm, mm-hmm, um mm-hmm. a zealous fan base that is like mainlining ego boosts like straight into your this isn't just an ego thing i think it's like also like a um like there's definitely a part of that in the way they are but also just the way it's sort of that very like formal and like there's just like a language to it that sounds really sort of like deliberately trying to sort of be like almost like a robinson crusoe or like the guy i don't know what the name of the guy who wrote robinson crusoe is but uh, that kind of prose just in the way uh, they like write stevenson lewis Lu- stevenson. robert lewis stevenson that sort of like early like oh no turn that of the was, century novels that was treasure island sorry whatever that you know what i'm talking <laughs> yeah, about like for sure there's a weird sure. archaicness and formality to their they 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 write like data talks on star trek like is kind of the way I think of right. it. Right. So they're kind of putting on airs a little bit. Yeah, there's definitely a putting on airs and sort of like a, um, um, that mental, that flexing how like smart you are with words. Right. Hmm. Plus they know that the ripples in these forums are going to be well, and resonating like, for months and months yeah, to and come. Yeah, and it's like yeah. they know, and they know, and at this point they know that the, everyone's like reading what they say and being like, oh, he said that <laughs> shit. Yeah. That's one verbose motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> all up in my forum Um, but dave so dave becomes the director of research does not even last a year (laughs) at tsr without butting heads with gary um from what i've heard is dave if he didn't like you you didn't he he if or if he disagreed with you he was very vocal um i've heard him referred to as an angry twerp (laughs) 
online. I think that's a negative characterization. Twerp. I, I think a twerp in a long time. Yeah, I well, yeah. Again, going back to the verbosity. <laughs> twerp. But um yeah, I think Dave was just like very outspoken, especially like about things he loved, and I think he just like did not like necessarily what Gary was doing to D&D. Which is what commercializing it more. No, or... I don't even. I don't think it was even that. I think it was just like the way the game was designed. He did not care for it. He didn't care for all the rules. And Gygaxian is a adjective that describes um, sort of like a dungeon master or a game design philosophy that specifically is like trying to mess with the players and sort of making it as hard for them as possible. Like Gary was really sort of like the the one like like temple of the what is it the temple of doom. Or like the um, there's a couple of old school D and D adventures that are sort of famous for how difficult they are. Oh yeah. The, um, what the fuck? What's the one? Shit, I did one. I can't think of it. I think the Temple of Doom is one of them, or something like that. Our DM, our DM ran it for us, and we all died, and we wiped, and then we never played. Yeah, again. and there's specifically like <laughs> there are things like now. there's there's one adventure where at the start the players just encounter a chest of gold. And if you don't know anything, you'd think it's just regular gold. But there are monsters in D and D called gold bugs, which eat gold, and their shell, their their the eggs that they lay look like gold. So it tricks the players into putting it in their bag. And if they do that, and the only way you can know this is if you know the adventure, and that's kind of the whole. So that sort of describes yeah. what Gary was really pushing for. Two more hours. And I think, I think again, like Dave was much more like this is like a fun collaborative thing. Like I want my players to be as interested in like building the world as I am. Minimal and mind fuckery. Again, like you will see that when we get to when Dave actually gets to publish Blackmore as like a D and D adventure game. Blackmore had like there's a whole module that's called Temple of the Gods where what you're actually doing is exploring a crashed starship. So like there's a very like interesting like science mix of science fiction and fantasy. There's like big like war engines and Blackmoors and and there's like what was one of the things there are like turnstiles at the dungeon entrances like like what? adventures go in and out all the time like a fucking like train a, station or like anachronistic take yeah on. And, and like there were like holy water fire hoses at one point like people talk about Blackmore as sort of being like there's kind of a goofiness to it that comes from like bunch of friends just riffing right. and creating together and like it's sort of silly and weird and and jarring to outsiders but to insiders that's sort of like yeah this is just what this is what we like holy water fire <laughs> right. like one of the most famous stories is how dave was playing with a group and one of the the players got a wish spell and um the wish spell if anyone doesn't know it's a, it's a they get to make a wish like a genie style wish and the rules actually say that the DM is supposed, yeah, supposed to sort to of like fuck like, with the wish and make it like, make it like, a monkey like the player paw has to word it and make it like a monkey paw where yeah. you can't like where something, yeah, you get what you want, but there's a consequence. Yeah. There's and a, one another the, edge to the sword. Yeah. And one of the players wished to be a vampire. So Dave turned him into a vampire rose bush, but he's like, he's the way he's describing this is they all thought it was hilarious and it was a ton of fun. Right. So I think that really like shows Dave's approach to the game. Like he was much more about sort of like, just a goofy fun time don't worry about like too much about like whether it sort of messes with the fourth wall or sort of sounds weird it's more about having fun and not that gary wasn't about having fun but gary was like this is like a a test of your mental acuity and your skills and the way you think and like like you know like there's traps Uh, around every corner and you have to be prepared and that and that was fun for gary right right? and there's like an adversarial yes component constant vigilance like like you were saying was with the 
the campaign that is too much yeah. for your group and then you everyone fails yeah. and then maybe you play for another couple months on a different set of quests or a single yeah. quest yeah. and then come back. The Tomb of Horrors. Tomb and, of Horrors, that's yeah. the one. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And you don't take that tr- first treasure. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I or whatever. We did yeah. encounter that. Because you've learned. We just yeah. developed. Figure it out. Yeah. But, and again, that can be fun in its own way. I right? could I see... Clearly for Gary, I could that see both. was fun. Yeah, I, I could see components of both. And mm-hmm. yeah, not that they were both like completely on opposite ends of the spectrum. Like I'm sure there was a mix. And, and Dave did end up using a lot of D&D rules in Blackmore just because they were published and it was easy to refer to them and stuff. So I think they're like, definitely, this isn't like a case of like two people completely opposed to each other. I think they had a lot more in common. I think it's just the fundamental underpinnings stylistic yeah Yeah, subtle more subtle stylistic Mm -hmm. differences Um, maybe so then in 1977 big year banner year for a lot of things but um tsr releases second edition DD as it would come to be known at the time it was known as basic DD and advanced DD. the basic concept was we'll make the basic set what what had happened was with the original game was they had introduced so much supplementary material that it was hard for new players to get into the game and this is a constant struggle of D at all times right. like how do we keep releasing new material and keep generating revenue while still not making the game fucking incomprehensible yeah. to newbies it's hard to patch a game that's yeah not it's, online. it's <laughs> it's just hard to appeal to both like newbies and and beginner players and advanced players at the um, same time in and make money and mm-hmm. like not just make it a free thing that people can hack and mess with or whatever right yeah so they do make basic and advanced D and tsr which is basically just gary and a few friends and they're making money at this point like they they have an office they have all these things it's not like this isn't like a company that's like in the red but they're not like the a huge juggernaut but they try and claim that they don't owe Dave royalties on Advanced Dungeons and Dragons because the game is different. God damn it. <laughs> and uh, this is also a big, this is really when Dave and Gary, like they had always sort of had that sort of like sparring contentious part to their, but I think it was still like, they were still like drinking buddies. Like they may not agreed on how D&D should work or how role playing should work, but they were still like, yeah, we're both gamers. We both work together. We both like play games together. We both see each other, Christmas cards, whatever. This was sort of the big falling out for the two of them. Hmm. And uh, eventually it did lead to lead to legal action and Dave suing. And we'll get to a little more of that. Um, he did end up winning and he did end up getting like, oh, like I think they ended up be giving him a 2.5% royalty on all D&D products. But this was also the point that um, a lot of people who are working with and for gary started to feel like for him and the blooms that it was starting to become a lot about more about money and about accumulating wealth right because uh, they are they bitches still or whatever i don't know what's the at this point they're working full-time for the for just board games or i, I think gary games? claims that in 1976 was the first year he started paying paying like like supporting his family just off gaming right gaming design and stuff okay. like that so they maybe just i don't know to... i haven't verified that claim i haven't seen gary's tax returns um right. we'll, they haven't we'll made him the release the 10 years <laughs> yeah gary gary's tax returns will all be in the show notes folks uh, i love how we've said like real things that are actually going to be in the show notes and then like bullshit things and people just have to guess yeah what are you gonna oh, find i'm gonna look at gary's tax returns sweet oh they yeah. Fuck. yeah i should probably stop doing that no no keep doing it <laughs> more <laughs> So um, uh, at this point, D&D is a big enough phenomenon that other companies are getting in. 
and Dave starts working for them because he's got cachet. His name's on the original D&D. Uh, he publishes the first fantasy campaign in 1977, the same year, um, which is essentially Blackmore. Um, and then later in 1979, he does another version called Adventures in Fantasy with one of his players. Um, people don't really like it, I think. And I think what that says is sort of like D&D really set the tone and that was what people expected. And because Blackmore was like ostensibly sort of created by the original D&D guy who's getting all these credits and they're like, oh yeah, it's going to be like D&D, but like just like new and stuff. And then it's, it's, I think it's philosophically a very different game and sort of like has that weird like, well, why the fuck are there like holy water fire hoses in my game where I'm supposed to be like, like slogging through dungeons and poking things with 10 foot poles Mm-hmm. um and um and so neither of them were really like big successes mm-hmm. um and a lot of people like even a lot of reviews panned them um well then it, it's effectively a like half step back yeah. to mm-hmm. like a predecessor of that's true the successful and i think like that was the other thing i was fantasy. reading this thread where tim cask one of the the editors that worked on the original blackmore supplement who does not like dave arneson at all um his claim was that he sort of basically when Dave wrote all that stuff, he basically handed Tim like a pile of stuff or like mailed it to him. And there was like a bunch of duplicate information and it wasn't very well organized. And again, like obviously he's embellishing to make it sound like he did a lot more work as an editor, but people even say of the original Blackmore supplement that it's sort of haphazard and kind of just like, whatever someone the thoughts off someone's head that have sort of been organized in a way that doesn't necessarily fully integrate with the base game unless you know unless you're the creator and you know exactly what they are right so i think it is true i think like gary was just maybe a little bit better at sort of like presentation and making sure and communicating how his game would work and i think like that's probably true of of dave too like he's he the thing the thing is once you become an expert on something it's hard to understand people who aren't, it's hard to understand what it's hard to know what people understand about a thing that you're intimately familiar with. If they're not intimately familiar with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like that's not, that's not a, a, a fundamental, that's not like Dave was a failure for it. It's like, it becomes harder the more you know about something to, to engage with someone who doesn't know anything about you, it. You assume they know more. Yeah. Yeah. You assume they have a more sophisticated. Well, and even just like, it. or then you go the other way and you patronize them. Right? right. Like that's the other danger. And like, I don't think, I think Dave is a guy who very much wanted to just go at his own pace too. So I um, also feel like in the middle of 1977 and the craziness that it was for these individuals that maybe Dave was just looking for a quick win. You know, he just kind yes. of, t- kind of split his ties from something that was established and, well, and- had had been gaining momentum and continues to build momentum with or without him. And he's like, Oh, well, how about that (laughs) kind of thing? And I think a little bit of just like, well, Gary's paying his bills off this. Why can't I? Because Dave wasn't, I think that's the thing that I think is very clear. Like Dave, I don't think ever like was paying his bills off of, or even like making much money at all off of these, off of gaming design. Like he, he eventually went on to teach it, but he was a teacher. He was an IT guy. He was just like, you know, doing, he was, he was working mm-hmm. day jobs this whole time. Right. So I think he saw TSR becoming this actual like 
profitable entity and was frustrated in a lot of ways. Right. Because like, even if he didn't do a lot of the, the hard work and the, the sort of building from the ground up, like without him, Gary may never, never have done that. Right. And like he, he was literally like the one who was like giving Gary all these notes on this original document and being like, like, and not ever being like, Gary, hold on a minute. Like, this is my work product. Like he never said that. Right. And like, great on one hand because like at the time it was probably just like well we're all just guys having a fun time like who fucking cares but then gary starts making money off it and tries to deny him fucking royalties like yeah. that's a which we're 10 percent at most yeah to begin with yeah and like and not 10 percent down to zero money. yeah right. exactly right but you see how like quickly that would spiral into like this kind of sticky situation when you start out as just like a couple guys you know having oh, fun time. playing some games and then and then you start incorporating but still you just want to like that's, build that's something gonna, that's having fun for you guys playing that's and... what's gonna happen to us when panoply comes to uh to, to buy our podcast <laughs> oh yes for sure and i'm gonna have to say yeah. goodbye oh, no. to the two of you and yeah. hey, just take up. the show on by yourself <laughs> Get get two sexy female co-hosts. Oh. oh, as soon as we get our first sponsor, you better believe I'm lowering up. So, <laughs> watch the fuck I'm out. Get my lowrider. I'm studying I'm get law my sponsorship. right now. Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah, you guys are dead to me. But um, so he actually so then get in 1980, Dave founds his own company, and by 1980, we are talking like cultural phenomenon D and D satanic panic all that shit like dnd like tsr is 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 a profitable company that's supporting like I, I think eventually at their height they had 150 employees so this was not like a mom and pop shop anymore mm-hmm. what's the opposite of a mom and pop shop a giant corporation mega yeah. um i don't even mega know corp. i wouldn't call them like they're not a fucking walmart by no any means but they're but like, like a, are they are, are they like getting close to like a what are something like a they're not even anywhere close to like a Milton Bradley or like a, something like that. It I would like, say they were on part, not Milton Bradley, like but like Parker they Brothers were, movie. they were the biggest, like even they would like, they were like compared to like Avalon Hill. I don't okay. know. I, again, so it's hard to, it's hard to say because it was like, it was the fucking eighties, but they're probably like, leading their segment of the market. Yes. Sure. They are like, they are like the Walt Disney of yeah. tabletop role playing games. Right, like right, they're, right. they're the face of it. They're the one that like people think of They're They're the only like, and even layman didn't like people who didn't play role playing games wouldn't necessarily know what TSR was, but if you were like, oh, that's the company that makes role playing games, that kind of oh yeah, D and D. So um, he founds his own company called Adventure Games uh, with a bunch of his friends who also were like his the guys that he played games with. One of them was uh, M A R Barker, who um, I think we're gonna do an episode on, and he's gonna be a, weirdly like a second banana to Tolkien. Um, he Sweet. created a world called Tecumel or Tecumel, which was, um, mm. a world very much inspired by, um, Indian, Middle Eastern, Egyptian, and Mesoamerican mythology, which he created languages for. He created like a whole history and cultures. Like he full, fully did what Tolkien was doing and he was a contemporary of Tolkien. Mm -hmm. And not to get into it, but I, I remember you saying that Tecumel actually was like a sensation kind of when it came out wasn't it like people it was big it was big enough it was sort of like i think like people were like excited to try something sort of like 
there's a bit of with like this. orientalism like ooh the the, the right. mystical fires <laughs> like fetish yeah, stuff slave yeah. girls right. and sultans and that kind of shit but right, right. but i think also like yeah so they 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 not only did adventure games publish it but eventually when adventure games um sort of got bought out or whatever uh tsr republished empire of the petal throne so there was enough interest in it to get it was a legit to property it. yeah um and so then by the around this time dave also moves up to california and that's where he starts to work uh both with computers and as a teacher or at least in education i couldn't again like i kind of like there's a lot of like fuzziness around dave's life outside of gaming um but this is where he starts to see the teaching potential in role-playing games that he would later sort of talk about and i think a big thing for him eventually was role-playing games are too hostile to new players it's hard for new players to get into them and not only physical tabletop role-playing games but computer games too he felt like they didn't do enough to teach new players how to play them and i think up until like maybe like 10 15 years ago he's right like yeah um, games were hard back in like the 80s and 90s video games i mean but oh, yeah for well, sure. and again like they were built by people who probably didn't want a bunch of new people coming into their hobby and probably felt resentful of it yeah i don't know but then yeah you did see in the early 2000s kind of the the very hand-holdy tutorial like yeah and it's or the first couple where they basically put everything on screen and point to everything you need to do this is a 20 sided dice (laughs) hey listen do you know what 20 side do you know what a side is like that's the equivalent in what like it would be to teach someone D &D. yeah totally um but um, again, so 1981, um, Dave and TSR settle, uh, 2.5% royalty on all the indie products. Um, and again, TSR is a big company. Um, 1981, 1982 is sort of the year that D&D has just become a cultural phenomenon. They're publishing other RPGs. Top Secret was like their spy RPG. Traveler was like a, a, a science fiction RPG. No, but really um, behind the scenes, Gary and the Blooms are basically battling for control of the company. A lot of the original people are leaving because they feel like Gary and the Blooms are sort of just like give a shit about money and about power. Um, Gary's developed a pretty bad cocaine habit by this point. Oh, um, Gary. He gets divorced. And uh, in 1983, the Blooms essentially gain control. Um I think like what happened was Melvin, the father died or retired, sold all his shares to Kevin, who is Brian's brother. And I think just in that sort of exchange, there was maybe some extra leverage gained or something. And they basically took control of the company. Gary, they're like, Gary, you are not going to run the company anymore. We just signed a deal on a cartoon. You're going to go out to California and you're going to handle the cartoon. Or Gary was like, you know what? fine fuck you i don't know right but the D cartoon i have it on dvd and um it's terrible it's off <laughs> it's, it's atrocious. so bad it's so bad it's <laughs> i don't even want to get into it <laughs> yeah um so gary goes out to california basically lives the, that hollywood life full-on buys like a lavish like apparently he bought like a lavish pad and was like partying with starlets and like all this bullshit like just doing a lot of cocaine with all the 80s yeah everybody was doing it yeah dave finally sold adventure games i don't think it was worth 
again, like running a company, especially if you're, you have another job is like, yeah. Bone crushing. Imagine. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, doing, doing this podcast is enough work <laughs> outside of just no. our day jobs. I can only imagine like fucking like, like, uh, I guess I do like six things, so I should shut up. <laughs> when I have to make my lunch for yeah, like I work, get, I want to kill myself. I get annoyed when I have to go to the grocery store, you know? Like, I have to fucking get food to eat. Why isn't my sustenance here? Why can't someone just shovel food yeah. in my face? Yeah. So, um, I think around this time, uh, D- Dave and Gary reconciled. They were both in California, interestingly enough, as far as I can tell. And... Um, Gary clearly still had some pull because he basically got Dave a job writing Blackmore Adventures for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, um, also known as the DA Dave Arneson module series. Uh, they were released in 1986 to 1987, and um, there was supposed to be five. Four got published. I think the first one was again called um, the Blackmore Campaign. Second one was Temple of the Frog, which is what the original adventure was published. Um, third one was uh, City of the Gods. And then I can't remember the rest. Oh, the Duchy of Ten was the name of one of them. So, yeah, I can't. I may have gotten the order wrong. I don't know. They're fucking. There's a bajillion D&D modules called like the something of something. The, the fifth one is the fifth one is planned. This is the point where everyone starts to realize that TSR is like running up debts that it cannot pay off, even though they are like a fucking huge company doing billions of dollars of business in a year. Um, is it just the, their employees that are running up debts? Like no, how it are... is the blooms. And it sounds like they, like what Gary eventually got them ejected on was misuse of company funds. And that just means that they were brazen enough that according to like the corporate charter, they were wasting money. And like, if you think about what that means for a company that makes one point mm-hmm. five billion dollars to do that, like you have to like fucking do something. You have to like pay for illegal things with company funds on record in order to get that kind of shit leveled against you and have a board remove you. Yeah. I think also like the the board was was not necessarily happy with the blooms and what they were doing. But yeah, Gary basically. Um, Finds out they're $1.5 billion in debt. Forces the blooms out and finds this woman named Lorraine Williams, who is sort of um, much more of a business-oriented person. Um, I don't know how much of this is like good old-fashioned tabletop role-playing game sexism bullshit, but she's sort of seen as the woman who ruined TSR. Um, Mm -hmm. She was very, like, I think she was very focused on making the company profitable again. And again, like, they had $1.5 billion in debt. I'm sure she was looking for any way to make money. (laughs) But she also, like, I think she's on record as, like, saying gamers are, like, a bunch of losers that live in their parents' basement or some bullshit like that. Which was was not not entirely untrue and is an unfortunate stereotype. But, like... Never. And what's funny is... (laughs) So they're basically like, yeah, Dave, we can't afford to keep publishing your modules. So Dave never writes the fifth module. That's fine. But um, Gary forces the blooms out and they're so mad at him that they sell all their shares to Lorraine and she takes control of the company over Gary. Whoa. (laughs) Power move. (laughs) Um, And that's the thing is like, I think she aggressively started to turn the company into putting out shit that would make the money that wasn't necessarily quality. And I think that really like eventually backfired. Because people mm. would buy the, all this stuff and then they would realize this it was low quality. Plus, 
uh, I think it was around this time that paper prices start printing paper started going way up the costs associated um, it became easier to make really fancy nice looking books and and like picture books and stuff but that was also more expensive mm. Dave on the other hand goes back to Minnesota he said he founded a company called 40 interactive systems I there's a company called 4D Interactive, which is I think like a, a a UK based like company that does something else entirely. But I finally found like 4D Interactive Systems, and it looks like they're not really they didn't really make many games, but they ended up making a lot of games engines that got used in a lot of games and stuff like that. Mm. Um, I'm still not really sure exactly what he did there. For all I know, he just like did tax evasion or whatever. <laughs> but he's also right. teaching part time. And this is around the period where he really starts talking about how, like, yeah, games are not very welcoming to new players. We're not doing enough to bring in newcomers, blah, blah, blah. And again, I think he was absolutely right about that. So he works in Minnesota for a while. And then in 1990, there's a company called Full Sail College, which I think was originally founded as a, um, I'm not sure what it was originally, but it's basically like a digital media sort of like new, it's very like cutting edge ahead of its time, like game design digital media that kind of stuff college or at least it is now and they hired him in 1990 to teach game design he's still gaming a lot um and like at this point you know he's in his i think um probably like late 50s you know like at least like um because i can't remember how old he was when he died but um he moves out to florida great place to retire yeah home of the home of the alligators in the swamps and gatorade florida man or whatever maybe dave is florida man (laughs) he's out there that's my conspiracy theory um so tsr is basically going under at this point and uh a little game called magic the gathering has taken the nation by storm um and uh wizards of the coast the company that made that uh is basically like gobbling up everything in the gaming industry including tsr and they basically were just like, hey, Dave, we'll give you an undisclosed sum to stop taking royalties. And like, you can imagine what kind of money that had to be to make him go, you know, I don't really want to get like 10 slash 2.5% on D&D products anymore. You know, like clearly it was enough money mm-hmm. to at least like not worry. Anymore. Yeah, probably <clears throat> a couple mil. Yeah, some decent skill. So, um, so finally, he basically at this point, like there's really not much else to his life other than playing games, occasionally writes some stuff for gaming companies. He, in, I think 2004, he published a D20 version, like D20 is sort of the main mechanic in D and D, um, of Blackmore. Um, he's still running the original game, going back to Minnesota to do that with his like old gaming buddies that he ran Bronstein with and stuff. And uh, in 2000, he even cameoed in the Dungeons and Dragons movie as a wizard. That was the one with Marlon Wayans? Yes, Marlon Wayans <laughs> and uh, Thora Birch. Wow. It was extreme... I didn't even know that was based on the it's Dungeons and Dragons so like, tabletop until I saw it. But yeah, it's like a long... It looks like, like they used the cartoon as the template to make that Well, movie. there's even like, <laughs> like one of the lines is like, a princess would never date a thief. Like that's like <laughs> yeah. that shit. And like... Um, or and there's a beholder. I don't know. It's it's so just like the worst. Mm-hmm. He um he just teaches at this college, um, game design and all that stuff. Um, uh, the big course that he taught was how to like balance both like um 
like challenges, like making the game cha- games challenging for the player in a variety of ways, both like intellectually, strategically, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. But um, I don't know. He his Wikipedia page says he died of cancer, um, in two thousand nine. In about two thousand eight, he retired and moved back to Minnesota. So it seems to me like he was just planning on teaching till he died. And then he probably got too sick to teach, essentially. Um, Mm -hmm. He moved back to Minnesota in a hospice. And it sounds like a lot of his family was still in Minnesota. Um, And yeah, in 2009, he finally passed away. There were just so many tributes to him. Like Blizzard made a whole area in in World of Warcraft for him and stuff like that. I mean, yeah, like Hmm. even by that point, even if he wasn't sort of getting like the recognition that Gary was, he was known as someone who was like very important to D and D and role playing games. He was yeah. a cultural icon. For yeah, sure. absolutely. If not and um, and probably easier it. to eulogize and mythologize once dead, you know, <laughs> in a lot of ways. And one of the, the the tributes and obituaries, his daughter would talk about how his game, his basement was always full of games and minis, and just how he really loved having fun gaming with people, and that was sort of what he wanted to do most. And uh, again, like that's what i think he stressed about the game was sort of the fun and the chaos of it i think was what really like drove him um again like the vampire rosebush thing was a great and he i've seen in interviews he's like i don't like rules layers i refer to them as the enemy and that's like a really interesting thing um so will you indulge me in the vampire rosebush <laughs> oh yeah, well, the one I that you told me earlier yeah. where he got the yeah. wish turned yes. yeah 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 and um and, and then, like that's so dumb like, but like oh, it's funny my finger too. and yeah, then it drinks and, your blood yeah. but it seems to me that he would be the type of guy that after he turned you into a vampire rosebush would also allow you to like grow your tendrils in and like yeah. open up the treasure chest and then you've yeah you know empowered all of your colleagues with a new Big fantastic time. weapon that Big can time. then turn you back into a hero for the ages and uh, yeah, everything and worked he, out. He was all about like sort of like just having a good ass fun time with yeah. his players yeah. and like and doing stuff like that, but in a way that was fun for everybody. Between that and the like teaching thing, I'm sold on this guy, man. Yeah, he's uh, he just <laughs> sounds like a, like like a he looks like Santa Claus too. <laughs> yeah, he does. He really does. <laughs> like a slightly like weird, creepy Santa Claus, but still like I would I don't be. Oh, like, he's kind of like a. Like a teddy zaddy, he's a full zaddy. Yeah, man. Dave Arnes, that's gonna be our first merch t shirt. Dave Arneson is my zaddy. I mean, it's pretty, yeah. I guess that's his Wikipedia picture. Basic zaddy Dave Arneson. (laughs) He can get it. He can, Dave Arneson can get it. You heard it from Wes Walcott here, folks. Yeah, I think, I think that's the thing. I think he just sounds like a, a guy who gave a lot to the hobby um probably got screwed a little bit and that maybe turned him a bit sour and like that's the thing i can see why he would be angry especially at people who sided with gary you know like like the tim cask or whatever like i'm like yeah he like is whatever but like i'm sure dave was like frustrated and angry that like he basically like spawned a movement and never really saw the fruits of it that he kind of deserved like he may not have done the work that gary did but like he did a lot of work on his own terms and um and yeah on good faith right? good faith that's a in, really good way to put in, it like, in the interest of the the movement of the idea yeah and, and like think... just the fun and the, the fun of like of like like you know like there's 
when you're into something, you just get a kick off of talking with people about it and, right. and theorizing and whatever and talking about the minutia of it that you can't talk about with people who aren't in the game. Yeah, and so, people yeah. people call it naive like naivety to not be um, collecting rent on something or not be monetizing something. Mm-hmm. But the thing that you sacrifice immediately when you start being all Gary about it yeah. is that you know you need to you need to be monetizing it and if you're not then you're a step behind and you're naive and you're a fool and oh well what do yeah. you think we weren't going to start making money off of it and you weren't going to get shut out and that seems like such a shame given the, and i don't think that the was philosophy like, that yeah. he had right? yeah and that's the thing and it's like that openness was what allowed them to 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 again like this wasn't a thing that they just made up out of nowhere it was built off of you know at least 10 to 30 other people's contributions and like i didn't even get into the number of people that worked with gary on all of the various iterations of D, even before he sold it or was kicked out of tsr like there were three versions of D released um from the time gary sort of like first released the first game and all of them had like a team on them there was right. never just gary of course even when dave wasn't working on it and again, both of them built everything that they learned off of other war games. Mm-hmm. There were war games when they were kids that they learned to play off of and built. Like nothing here was built out of thin air. It was no, all stuff that yeah. existed and they just took it and tried something new with it. And that's that's worth something. And I think we need to recognize that they saw they they created a new form of gaming mm-hmm. out of all these disparate influences and put them together over but over like two decades. Yeah. It took a long time for them to get there. And that's like and like, yeah, to just shut Dave out when he was like a significant part of that and really like Gary's inspiration was like shitty. Right. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was really shitty. But like, yeah, to even see where that is then gone to like, yeah, they built it off Chainmail and I think they packaged it in a way that was then, yes, very marketable. But then having that package then allowed so many other developers to then build off it and like their archetypes like became the go-to for like millions of oh of, big time of games like mm-hmm. when you look at video games and rpgs and, and jrpgs and like yeah that impacts like yeah you don't see that with too many creators i don't think no to have that no, kind absolutely. of impact on a well and it was almost industry. like it became it because of the nature of the industry and the way gamers sort of were very do-it-yourself and just like yeah i'm just gonna fudge with it and mess with it as soon as they put that out into the world there was no way it wasn't gonna be that right like mm-hmm. so it's always interesting that kind of thing of like yeah the sort of community that builds a thing versus like who profits off it and i think we'll see that again and again as we talk about a lot of these people who come out of like not just like um like even like like the whalers was another good example totally right? like how many people how many people did they come out of that scene from right right and how many people even just like uh turnstiled through that band i mean i'm dismissing their experience in that band and the band's growth from that. Yeah. But they had a rotating cast of members that were playing the different instruments. Well, and even just for a yeah, time. And then it, yeah. And it's just a, a very. And Dave similar. and Gary both had player groups of like 20 people that they played, that they play tested the games with. Like those guys put their time into it. And like, again, they had fun, but like, they, like technically, and they were all credited, but I don't, a lot of those guys have never seen a dime off of Dungeons and Dragons. So I think like that's the thing of like, yeah, even just the money and capitalism. And that's, that's why we should be all communists because then we can just do that stuff and not worry about the money. 
Well, that yeah, and, I'm there. I don't know if I'm with you, <laughs> but there is, the, but there is such a, um, such a strong case study there, or like I don't know, you can pull away, and I feel like if people, a lot of people dismiss things as like, oh well, how how are we going to have great things? How are we going to have nice things? How are we going to innovate to the next? Well, and these like superlative iteration but these guys did it without, without profit yeah right but that's the thing is actually it kind of seems like people for example need to exist and while they're existing they like doing things yeah and what kind of things are they doing well for the most part we're working because we need to eat and survive and that's how we eat and survive in this version of existence yeah and there's like a very but we oh, privileged imagine what we do without having to do saying. you're saying we need to move to society Second edition. Definitely. Yes. Society 2.0. Possibly even like 3.5 or like 12.8 yeah. at this point. It's probably not really going to get going until fifth edition. Yeah, unfortunately. Serious, but. And if, yeah, if it wasn't about like, all right, now there's this vague gray kind of amorphous area through which this innovation, yeah. this idea, this collective enterprise that is beyond and not even considering profit reaches a point where now people in the vanguard of this thing need to start thinking about how they're going to monetize it how they're yeah. going to parlay that into that that money yeah and it was and, and then it falls apart the movement becomes something completely yeah. different because well, new they... new actors come in the old ones who have That's passion for the thing fall away yeah mm -hmm. people that try to like creators i think they'll often they start thinking about that stuff right away and that can stifle like the creativity and the, cause you're exactly, you're yeah. too worried about who's getting what cut. Well, and how and do like, I make yeah. this product viable for the largest audience possible that will buy it? Right. Because that's how you make the most money and, right. you need to, and it needs to be profitable. And that's the thing is like, obviously this was never like a case of like, we need to make this a game that anyone will buy. It was clearly like they had an audience in mind, but they had to pay, cater to that audience. And like, Dave tried not to, and look what happened. It didn't go anywhere because people had expectations, and because Dave needed to make money off it, it or he didn't going, in this yeah. case, like he didn't cater to those expectations, it didn't make him enough money to live off it, right? Like it's just, yeah, mm -hmm. like imagine what he could have done if he hadn't needed. Now, and again, like he clearly discovered things through his work that helped him and, and brought him to a place that he loved. Mm -hmm. But I think like, yeah, imagine how life would have been different if Dave hadn't had to like work on other things when he was gaming. Maybe he would have released like a whole line of Blackmore adventures and supplements that would yeah. now have like would have eventually eclipsed D&D &D because people would have realized, oh, these are more fun. These are more playable. These are just like right. more goofy, but like they're also a different way of approaching it. And sometimes that's a whole other thing that I don't think we got into, but we will get into is like, there are people who never see success when they're alive and they toil at whatever they love. And yeah. then people recognize it after they've passed or whatever. And like, mm -hmm. it's only to imagine what more they could have created if they hadn't had to <clears throat> spend all this other time on other things because they were never recognized enough to turn a profit or they just, what they were doing wasn't any in it wasn't even going to be profitable, even if they were alive for it. Right. Yeah, they didn't have the luxury yeah. of being able to spend time on that because they needed to spend time doing stuff that actually sustained them. them and kept them alive or kept their family alive. Well, right? and I'll take I'll take it a step further. I mean, I hesitated to actually bring this up, but you pretty tidily kind of segued into it. But imagine if 
survival wasn't a question for billions of more people on the planet and that many more people not because uh you know we're able to have a full selection of things to be interested in and pursue and then people who are interested in things like role play games or whatever name your name your area of interest it's down to what that individual is interested in and they can dedicate their enthusiasm their passion their ingenuity their everything that they have to offer to it imagine what sort of different directions rpgs could take if the whatever person from whatever population around the planet who currently is just actually grinding away trying to keep food on their table so mm-hmm. that they can go to grade three or if even grade three is an option for them yeah so on and so forth but like we're we're cutting ourselves off at the knees as a society as as a planet by just being like oh well, you have to earn survival yeah but really like you shouldn't have to earn survival that's a really easy thing to solve and then imagine how many more people you'd have that are interested in politics for the right mm-hmm. reasons imagine the amount of people who are that you have who are interested in medicine for the right reasons yeah, exactly. law for and the people right who reasons don't have to like against again, all odds with stuff like like rpgs people can just fuck around in their basements and nobody gets hurt like Absolutely. again like that's and again and and medicine when we talked like about like rosalind crick and stuff like she was a wealthy Rosalind Franklin. Fra- from Rosalind Franklin. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Rosalind Crick. God damn it. Uh, <laughs> uh, James, weren't you listening? <laughs> Crick, Frank Watson. No, no, no. The same basket. But like medicine, like there's a reason we certify people and it and get them to go through all this training because they can kill people if they don't, if they just practice medicine on their own. And it's not that that stuff shouldn't exist, but under our society, it costs hojillions of dollars to become a doctor. And right. imagine if it didn't. And people could still receive that training and the 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 sort of like right. required training over years, which takes the time. But they don't have to pay millions of dollars in schooling, yeah. and they don't. And like so, there are so many people who are like, I can't afford to to even train to be a doctor. Like, and yes, in theory, like these doctors eventually make enough money to cancel that out. But if you can't get there in the first place, it's um, a non-question. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. It's like that would never even be considered. Yeah. Whereas they could at least on paper, be a better doctor than any doctor that exists right now. Yeah, exactly. And the financial right. criteria was the one that excluded them. Yeah. It was wild, if you think about it. Yeah. Anyways, that was a bit of a... No, no, <laughs> I think a this is something we want to talk about, is, like, the implications of this and what it For means, sure. and, like, fuck. Like, I hope and people are, are are listening to this and being like, damn, yeah. I love Dave Arneson, and, and I want to make sure he, the next Dave Arneson gets to do whatever he wants. It is. I'm going to roll one out for Dave Arneson. Yeah. It's we a got four. a four. It's I don't four. know what that means in terms of Dave Arneson, but... Good. We hope you're up Thanks. there in the in the Dungeon Master screen in the sky, buddy. Um, yeah, if people want to um, check out this further, like I said, um, Designers and Dragons by Shannon Applekline is sort of a view of, of the RPG industry and the people who created these games and, and sort of the evolution of them from the 70s all the way to now. Um Gary Gygax has a auto a biography written by a guy named Michael Whitwer. It's called Empire of Imagination. Um, I did not manage to read that one um, because there was a whole. I put a hold on it at the library, but it was checked out until after <laughs> this recording, so that's fine. Um, there's also a graphic novel that's essentially about Gary Gygax is focused called The Rise of the Dungeon Master. Um, I was looking at a book called Of Dice and Men. 
it sounds like it has some pretty gross gendered comment comments about gender and how like and sort of like not in a way that's critical but sort of in a ha 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 it's mostly dudes that play this like oh look like the, the author apparently uh, the sort of surprise that women are into the hobby or makes it sort of seem like the i don't know i i might be hearing like uh, this is what i've heard from reviews it might still be a book worth checking out. It sort of just tracks the creation of role-playing games. And but it at least exists. The life of the hobby, and it <laughs> exists. Um, there's a bajillion. Like, go. I just went to uh, my first uh, initial instinct was, again, to go to Dave and Gary's Wikipedia pages and branch out from there and then check the sources and check them against other sources. Um, but there's also um, a book, another book that I haven't heard of, that I haven't read that is supposed to be good is the evolution of fantasy role-playing games by michael tresca and there's a number of interviews with dave arneson i will put all this in the show notes um you can check it out um you can find your own sources and if you find any other interesting sources of information please let me know uh you can email us at secondbananaspod at gmail.com i have set that email address up fancy um, maybe i'll share the password with uh craig and wes so they can answer emails too not right tight <laughs> tweet so. the two opposite ends of the continuum not recommended and tweet <laughs> and anywhere in between yeah um but yeah i think we'll just uh maybe wrap it up uh i'm again joe stillwell you can follow me at stop joe now on twitter and instagram um and i uh, i'm i'm doing a bunch of other stuff too but you probably the best way to find out about that is on twitter uh wes oh yeah wes walcott you can follow me on twitter and instagram at wes walcott um yeah no not not doing too much right now either and craig blanchard and you can send tasteful nudes to not <laughs> Wes Walcott. Send them to the Second Bananas pod. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah, that'll be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can check them there, too. Nice and saucy. <laughs> I'll still find them there, so. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I don't think we have any other special events coming up, and uh, I think we should get this wrapped up, so uh, please like and subscribe oh, to our show. Yeah. Uh, we don't have any sort of social media set up yet, but we'll let you know when we do in future episodes. Oh, you'll know. Put together a MySpace and, uh, page. Please, please do um, uh, give us a, a rating and review on iTunes. Those apparently really help. And I think what we're tr- going to try and do is get enough downloads and reviews and ratings to get into the new and new- noteworthy category. So if you could also recommend us to a friend, and uh, that'll all be after Revolver anyway. So I don't know. Anyway, please do that. Please just like and subscribe. And yeah. All that shit. And whatever you do, like don't take the gold from that first chest. Do not take the gold from the first chest in the Tomb of Horrors. Don't no. do it. Just don't touch don't anything do in the Tomb of Horrors. Yeah. Just stand still. Just, <laughs> Icky. Just stand still and Icky make it really boring. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. the best way to get through um, it. Yes. Thank you again for listening. This has been Second Bananas, where we talk about history's greatest Garfields. And we'll see y'all <laughs> next time. History's greatest Garfield. <laughs> history's greatest Garfunkels. Um, <laughs> I would have gone, gone with Odie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who is the... Is it? Is it? It's Odie. It's totally Odie. No, it could be John or Nermal. Nermal. Ooh, all three of them. Mm. Probably good Nermal. Multi, we got. We got a three-parter coming series. up. Yeah. All right. History's greatest <laughs> Garfunkels. Um, cut that out. No, because the Garfield <laughs> bit is good. Yeah. I don't know. Either it's way. Good. 
Uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next time when we talk about Ada Lovelace. Oh, shit, yeah. I'm looking forward to this one. Me too. She's very interesting. I'm not, but <laughs> of course I am. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye, friends. Hi, I'm Talia Murdoch, and I'm here to find out if you've ever asked yourself why Superman and Batman fight why Batman needs Robin in the first place. Get answers to these questions and more in the Everything Economics series about superheroes on the Cave Goblin Network. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.